Thanks for tuning in to this Journey Bible Church sermon podcast. Join us every week for fresh sermons from God's Word by subscribing to this podcast wherever you like to listen most. If you are looking for a church in the Kansas City metro, come check out one of our church's campuses for worship on Sundays. Now, we hope you enjoy the message. series in particular, you definitely don't want to miss one part before moving too far into the next part. And the reason for that is that while we study Ephesians, you're going to see that the letter gradually builds upon itself. Uh, For example, last week we were introduced to the mystery of the Father's will in Ephesians 1.9. And we were told a little about the mystery, but not a whole lot. And that's because the idea of the mystery is going to be revealed in much greater detail when we get to chapter 3. In fact, the first half of chapter 3 is really all about explaining the mystery that gets introduced in chapter 1. Ephesians is also a letter that contains long sections of continuous thought. So uh, there's a lot of what what we might call rambling, where it just keeps going and going and going. Uh, For example, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, which we've been studying, is actually one long sentence in the Greek. Uh, Some commentators actually suggest that the sentence has characteristics of a Hebrew-style poem or a psalm that's extolling God. Uh, It beckons us to live lives believing in the triune God of salvation, in God the Father who has elected us for salvation, in God the Son who has redeemed us for salvation, and in God the Spirit who is our witness for salvation. Chapter 1 then ends with a prayer of thanksgiving that we're going to look at in next week's message. But in this message, we're going to focus in on Ephesians 1, verses 13 to 14, which Jacob just read for us. Uh, These verses are special because they emphasize the role of the Holy Spirit in salvation. But before we dig into these verses, let's see how they fit into the wider chapter itself. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there to Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Uh, It's also going to be up on the screen uh, where we have it divided up into sections. And I want you to look carefully at each uh, section because you're going to notice a pattern. Now, this may be a little hard to read, but that's kind of the point. It's to show you kind of the visual pattern of what's going on. The first section is verses 3 through 6, and that introduces us to the electing and predestining work of God the Father. If you look there at verse 6, we're told that the result of all that the Father does is to the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious grace. Then if we move to the second section in verses 7 through 12, we're introduced to the redemptive work of God the Son. And if you look there at the last verse in that section, verse 12, we're told the result of all this is to the praise of his glory. To the praise of his glory. So the Father works to the praise of God's glorious grace, 
and the Son works to the praise of God's glory. Let's see what happens next. Finally, when we look at the third section in verses 13 through 14, we're introduced to the witnessing, the sealing work of the Holy Spirit. It just so happens that verse 14 reiterates the previous sections. We're told the result of the Spirit's work here is also to the praise of His glory. So whether it's Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit, Ephesians wants us to know that all the members of the Trinity work all things to the praise of God's glory. The Father, to the praise of his glorious grace. The Son, to the praise of his glory. The Spirit, to the praise of his glory. So if God is working all things for the praise of his glory, what does that mean for us? How should this influence the way we view the reality of the Christian life? Well, we could focus today's whole sermon on how to live in light of God's glory. In fact, that would be an amazing sermon, but we only have so much time, and I want us to kind of lean into the sealing work of the Holy Spirit today. So instead, I want to share a simple, practical thought that I found from R.C. Sproul. He wrote this. We do not segment our lives giving some time to God, some time to our business or schooling, while keeping other parts to ourselves. The idea is to live all of our lives in the presence of God, under the authority of God, and for the honor and glory of God. That is what the Christian life is all about. Again, we don't segment, we don't plan our lives out where we give some of our time to God, some of our time to our business, some time to school, some time to our hobby, some time for ourselves. The idea, the reality of the Christian life is that we orient all of our life, all of our lives, towards the presence of God, under the authority of God, and just like God himself, for the glory of God. If the triune God works all things together for his glory, then as his image bearers, we ought to work all things together for his glory. To live as though Sunday morning belongs to God, Monday through Friday belongs to your boss, and Saturday belongs to your family isn't really the Christian life. Living as though all days, all deeds, all things, and all moments can praise God's glory, that's the way to strive in the Christian life. So don't be a Sunday-only Christian. Be an all-day, everyday Christian striving in any situation to praise God for his glory. Now, with this pattern in mind, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, let's zoom into Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. So follow along as I read these verses again. In him, that is in Christ, as we saw last week, you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him in Christ, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So we've already seen that whether it's the Father, the Son, or the Spirit, 
When it comes to our salvation, the God of salvation works all things to the praise of his glory. So in this sermon, we're going to focus in now on the Holy Spirit. Verse 13 says, You also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, seal here is not referring to cute baby seals, you know, that we might find swimming in the ocean or on, you know, those uh, Instagram posts and everything. So, seal is referring to this divine process of authentication. Uh, If you remember back to last week's sermon, we used the illustration of Smog's dragon horde from The Hobbit. He had this big horde of treasure. And Jesus is the redeemer who goes into the dragon's den to reclaim the treasure that rightfully belongs to God. To kind of continue with this illustration, with this line of thinking, the Holy Spirit is the seal that proves that we are the genuine treasure, that we are the genuine article. His presence proves that we are the real treasure that God is after and not just kind of fool's gold that belongs to the dragon. To kind of help us process what it means to have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, we're going to consider and answer kind of three big questions in this sermon uh, that Ephesians kind of presents for us. First, who were sealed. Second, what is the seal? And third, what does the seal do? So if you're taking notes, who were sealed, what is the seal, and what does the seal do? That's going to kind of be the outline for this message. Now, the way that we're going to answer this first question is by looking carefully at verse 13. Again, verse 13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So, who were sealed? Well, quite simply, we're told that you were sealed. That's the answer. You were sealed. In a sense, we, the readers, are the ones who have been sealed. And in another sense, the original Ephesian readers are the ones that have been sealed. But, you know, you don't need me to tell you that. We're going to see, though, that there's actually something really interesting going on here. Uh, Not just any reader is sealed. Paul goes on to describe characteristics of the sealed reader. So to determine whether or not we were sealed by the Holy Spirit, we need to determine whether or not these characteristics truly describe us. So if you look in your Bibles, you're going to see that in verse 13, this is the first time in Ephesians chapter 1 that Paul shifts from using the first person to the second person. Uh, If you're not a grammar person, that means that this is the first time that Paul goes from using we, us, our, kind of corporately first person, to saying you and your, first time in the letter. Now, this might not seem significant, but it really is. The significance here is that there's a direct address happening. Paul wants the reader to know that God is directly addressing them right here. It's not they were sealed. It's not we were sealed. It's you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, again, this isn't just any you. It's not as if, you know, this is a magic letter, you read it, and now it suddenly seals you. No, rather, Paul alludes to four characteristics of someone who is sealed right here in this verse. So the first characteristic is that the seal is available 
to all. Again, the seal is available to everyone. And we get this from an odd word. We get this from that word also in verse 13. You also. Why did Paul add the also? It seems a bit forced in the English, and it's also right in there in the Greek. And if we believe the Bible is inspired, we can't just you know, say, oh, this is a mistake and move on. There must have been a purpose. And sure enough, there is a purpose to Paul adding, you also. Now, in the original language, the also is not here for emphasis. It's not you, you. The also is here for inference. Literally in English, the text is you blank also. You blank also. It's inferencing something that would have been easily assumed knowledge that Paul and the Ephesians would have shared. So what goes in the blank? Well, since Paul is a Jew and the Ephesians are predominantly Gentiles, it's more than likely Paul is saying, you Gentiles also. Gentiles, non-Jews, pagans, people of other nations are what is inferred in the blank. You Gentiles also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, if we go back and reread verses 3 through 12, this brings an entirely new perspective to all the we's, ours, and us's that Paul has used in the text. Paul is speaking as a Jew who is a true heir of God's covenant promises in the Old Testament. Paul is saying in the letter, we Hebrew people are blessed by God to bless God. We Hebrews were chosen to be holy and blameless. We Hebrews were predestined for adoption. We Hebrews were redeemed in the Messiah's blood. We Hebrews have been ordained as the Messiah's inheritance to the praise of God's glory. Then, when Paul gets to verse 13, he gets to the big reveal. In him, you Gentiles also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Everything that I just said that was true of us, is now true of you. Now, why would God inspire Paul to write the letter this way? Well, God wants us to recognize the universal nature of this sealing. Now, I'm not saying all are sealed, but what God's word is saying is that no matter your ancestry or your lineage, or your nationality, Jew or Gentile, covenant people or non-covenant people, anyone can be chosen, adopted, redeemed, and sealed by God. What this is really gets at is the promise that no one is left out of God's team. No one is left out of God's team who wants to be on it. Everyone knows what it's like feeling left out, and it's never a good feeling. You know, sometimes we're left out because we're just not the best fit. We audition for a role, we, you know, try out for a team, we interview for a job we really want, and then we don't get selected. Um, we don't get picked, someone else does. That's just life, uh, but we can still feel left out. Other times, you know, we feel left out because people can just be mean. 
Sometimes mean people make us feel bad by excluding us from the group. And still other times, we end up feeling left out because people can just be insensitive. They forget to include us because they're so consumed with what's going on in front of them that they miss other people around them. What's amazing about God is he doesn't have any of these human deficiencies. If you want to be on God's team, then you can be on God's team. His selection process began before the beginning of time, and he has chosen everyone who wants to be a team player. No one is left out. No one is excluded. No one is ignored. Anyone can be sealed, but as the Bible reveals, not everyone is sealed. Those who are left out choose to be left out. Those who want in are chosen to come in. Now, the second characteristic makes this absolutely clear. In him, in Christ, you Gentiles also were sealed. The second characteristic of those that were sealed is that they are united in the Son's work. They are united in him, meaning in Christ, in the Messiah, in the Son of God. It's here that we're told that all of God's work in Ephesians 1 applies just as much to Gentile Christians as it does to Jewish Christians. So it's not just Jewish Christians like Paul who are united in the redeeming, revealing, and retrieving work of the Son that we looked at last week. All Christians are united in the redeeming, revealing, and retrieving work of the Son. So how do you know, then, if you're united in him? How do you know if you're united in the Son's work? Well, that's where we get to kind of the third and fourth characteristics. So if we follow along in the verse, and we're looking at verse 13, it says, In him, so in his work, you're united, you Gentiles also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So you can be anybody, but only those who have heard the Son's message can know they are united in the Son's work. So if you haven't heard the Son's message before, you can't be sure if you've been sealed. If you've rejected the Son's message, you can't be sure you're sealed. If you go to church on Sundays, but you don't know what the Son's message is, then you can't be sure that you're sealed. So what is the word of truth here? What is the gospel of your salvation, as Paul puts it? What is the Son's message? Well, the word gospel means simply good news. And it's actually going to show up four more times in Ephesians. It's going to show up twice in chapter 3 and twice in chapter 6. But it's really in chapter 2, the next chapter, where Paul is going to thoroughly explain to us what salvation is and why salvation matters. So let what I'm about to say be more of like an appetizer, you know, like the dumplings that come out before you get all your Chinese food. So what is the gospel? Well, as succinctly as I know how to put it, the gospel is the good news, it's the Son's message, that Jesus is the Lord who will judge every sin, and Jesus is the Savior who saves sinners by grace through faith. Again, the gospel is the good news message that Jesus is the Lord who will judge every sin, 
and that Jesus is the Savior who saves sinners by grace through faith. Now, we're going to explore the riches of the gospel in later sermons in Ephesians, but for our purposes here, what's important is not that you have an in-depth mastery of the gospel of salvation. What's important is whether you have a basic comprehension of it. God is looking for the presence of an elementary understanding of the gospel, not like a PhD or a ton of degrees in understanding the gospel. It's not like you need to go and get all this before you become a Christian. You may have heard the good news about Jesus explained to you differently than kind of what I just said, but have you heard in some shape or form the message that Jesus is the Lord and that he's going to judge every sin and that Jesus is the Savior who saves sinners by grace through faith. If you have heard the Son's message, then you can be sealed with the Holy Spirit. If you haven't heard the Son's message, then you may have been asleep for the last 60 seconds. So just check in. But, you know, as we're going to see in verse 13, hearing the gospel still isn't enough. You need a fourth characteristic. Uh, That fourth characteristic is this. Have you believed in the Son? We're told that those who heard and believed in the Son were sealed. You need both in order to be united in him. The gospel itself calls for a response to those who hear it. You can ignore it, dismiss it, reject it, or you can believe in it. And if you believe in the gospel, if you trust the Son's message as truth, not only do you need to respond to the truth of the gospel of salvation, but you also need to actively believe in and pursue the person of salvation. It's not just enough to have knowledge, like head knowledge, of the gospel. You must believe in the person of Jesus Christ and follow Jesus Christ with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. So by way of review, who are those that were sealed with the Holy Spirit? Well, we saw in verse 13 that, number one, the seal is available to all. So everybody should meet that characteristic. It's available to all who are, number two, united in the Son's work, by number three, hearing the Son's message, and number four, believing in the Son. The reality of the Christian life is that these four characteristics must all be true of you in order to have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. The spiritual certification process by which you are sealed is pass-fail. Either all four of these are true of you and you pass, or one or more of these is untrue of you and you fail. If you can look at this list and you can say with a good conscience, yes, these are true of my soul, then you can be assured today that God is directly addressing you with these words in Ephesians. You have indeed been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And you can be confident that God has chosen you to be on his team. So let's move now to our second big question that Ephesians 1.13 presents. And that is, what is the seal? What is the seal? Notice precisely what verse 13 says there. You were sealed 
with the Holy Spirit, that preposition with. It doesn't say by, it doesn't say for, it doesn't say or in, it says with the Holy Spirit. So what is the actual seal? According to verse 13, the Holy Spirit himself is the seal. We are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This means God himself is the seal. God himself has taken up residence in our souls, and that's a mystery and a wonder to ponder. God the Spirit has sealed us as his own possession, and that's pretty incredible. We're going to look into what this means in just a moment, but first, I don't want us to miss the fact that the Holy Spirit is described as the promised Holy Spirit. All throughout the Bible, these are, there are promises pointing to the coming of the Holy Spirit. God the Father spoke through the prophets about the Holy Spirit. The prophet Joel declared, speaking on God's behalf, it shall come to pass afterward, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Notice how he says all flesh, Jews and Gentiles, all peoples. The Messiah himself, Jesus, revealed to his disciples that the Holy Spirit was coming too. The Son promised the Father would send the Spirit in his name, in the name of the Son. Then if we turn to Acts chapter 2, we can see the apostles also spoke concerning the promised Holy Spirit. The apostle Peter in his sermon declares, Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The promised Holy Spirit wasn't so much of a surprise for faithful Jewish followers of Jesus who became Christians. What we learned surprised them most was that Gentile followers who became Christians had also been sealed with the Holy Spirit. That unexpected surprise is what Paul is referencing here. What everyone thought was promised just for the Jews, just for the people of God, was also for the Gentiles. It was for all nations. The Holy Spirit wasn't just for God's people, the God's covenant people under Moses and Exodus. No, the Holy Spirit would be a promised blessing for all the families of the earth flowing from God's covenant with Abraham all the way at the beginning of the Bible. The promised Holy Spirit is a promise for everyone, meaning anyone who is united in Christ, who hears the gospel of Jesus Christ and believes in the person of Christ can be sealed with the Holy Spirit, with the indwelling presence of God himself. So what does it then mean to be sealed with the Holy Spirit? Or in other words, our third, our last and our third big question, what does the seal actually do? What does it do? Well, I thought we'd have some fun with this last question. And we're going to use some different illustrations related to home ownership. And yes, some of them are going to be a stretch, so bear with me. So I think they're going to increase in fun level. Maybe not. I don't know. So sealing here it does not mean, again, closing up or sealing away. For example, uh, we're told that Jesus' tomb was sealed, right? It was sealed with a big boulder. Well, that's not what's happening here with the Holy Spirit. The kind of sealing in Ephesians 1.13 is more along the lines of validation, certification, like notarizing, securing, authentication. So the first homeowner illustration I want us to consider is more of a family illustration. 
A house isn't just a property. It's a family name that can also be a title. So up on the screen, we have uh, two images. Uh, one of those images is our family heraldry for House Tatham. Uh, it traces its way back to England. Don't worry, we're not royalty. If we showed up at this place, they'd be like, get off our, get off our, our, our doorstep. So, but my grandpa was really, f like, he, he loved looking into this sort of stuff. So uh, he, he gave me one of these, and I think he gave my brother another one just for us to kind of remember House Tatham. So if you're looking closely at the heraldry, you can see that House Tatham is represented with three black swans. Don't ask me what those symbolize, I don't know. Uh, it's on a white shield and it's got a cool red stripe. So from a distance, I, I like to think those swans are more like swords or daggers. I think that's way cooler than swans, but that's just my opinion. So the second image um, is from the new movie Dune. So anybody recognize that? Okay, we have good, faithful sci-fi people in the back. That's good. So everybody else, go watch Dune. It's full of biblical motifs. So uh, this here is Duke Leto Atreides' signet ring for House Atreides. If House Tatham were to have a signet ring, then you'd see three swans and a stripe on the ring. Although it's kind of hard to make out in this image, the House Atreides ring is way cooler. It's like a rising eagle, like that's the family crest. It just looks awesome. At the beginning of the movie, so this isn't a spoiler, it's like within the first 10 minutes, this emperor, the space emperor, sends dignitaries to Duke Leto's homeworld. It's this beautiful ocean planet called Caladan. Uh, the emperor has decided to move the duke and all of House Atreides to occupy this awful desert planet called Dune. It's on Dune where one of the most valuable resources in the whole galaxy is collected and refined. And this is the scene in the movie where Duke Leto seals an agreement of House Atreides to carry out the emperor's will. He presses his ring into the melted wax to seal his family's crest, the crest of House Atreides, onto the document when the wax dries. This is exactly what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit invisibly, spiritually, miraculously marks us as royalty. He permanently seals us like a signet ring dripped onto hot, uh, dipped into hot wax. His spiritual presence authenticates us as royalty. Not in House Tatham, not in House Atreides, not in House Gryffindor, but in House Christ. That is our house now. This marking is not just a gift, though. It's a responsibility. It's not just Duke Leto's responsibility to honor his agreement to the emperor. All of House Atreides is called to honor the family's agreement. So if you bear the name of Christ with the Holy Spirit then you have been given a new name, but you have also been given a new responsibility. We have a responsibility now to carry out the will of our Father's house. We are called to do everything that we can to bring honor and glory to house Christ. Often, that means putting aside our own desires and ambitions in order to fulfill our Father's will. So if you're wondering what it practically looks like to live as somebody who is sealed with the Holy Spirit, start considering this. 
What does it mean for you to live up to the name of Christ, the name of Messiah? In what ways are you going to put your father's interest ahead of your own interest? Or in what ways can you bring greater glory, not just to yourself, but to the whole family of house Christ? If you've never done so before, maybe reorient the way you follow Jesus. Don't think of yourself as this lone disciple trying to survive in a harsh desert planet like Dune. Start thinking of yourself as a royal ambassador who belongs to the most powerful house in the universe. Start considering how you're going to help conquer this harsh world, not a fictional world, this harsh world that we live in for Christ, because that is, in fact, the responsibility of house Christ, the church. We are called to overcome the world to the praise of God's glory. Now, the next illustration is more of a financial one, Uh, for homeowners. So if you're boring and you don't like science fiction, this might be more up your alley. Verse 14 tells us that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. Literally, that word guarantee means down payment in Greek. If you've ever bought something really expensive, like a car or a house, or some of you have bought a college degree, um, most Americans, as you know, aren't able to completely pay for those things out of pocket. So instead, what we do is, much as we're able, we pay what's called the down payment, and then we incrementally pay back what we owe uh, with interest. According to verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the one who is our literal down payment, is what it's saying there in the Greek. This means that your down payment has already been paid. There's nothing you need to pay. It's already been paid by God, and there's nothing we need to contribute. That's good news. But some of you might be thinking, if, you know, if you're thinking sharp here in the morning, why do we need the Spirit as a down payment? Didn't Jesus already pay the full price of my redemption on the cross? Well, to help us answer that, I want to read an observation by a commentator named Peter O'Brien. He'll help us frame this answer. He writes, here in verse 14, the Spirit received is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. In giving him to us, God is not simply promising us our final inheritance, but actually providing us with a foretaste of it, even if it's only a small fraction of the future endowment. In other words, the down payment is not for our salvation here. This down payment is for our greater spiritual inheritance in Christ. The Holy Spirit himself is the deposit that God has given us to taste the power and the blessings of heaven today. This means that you don't have to wait to enjoy the blessings of heaven. Now, for any of you who have bought a home before, you would know that you can enjoy the benefits of being a homeowner without having to first save hundreds of thousands of dollars over the course of several decades in many cases before you can do so. You can pay a down payment, you can get a mortgage, and you can enjoy the benefits of being a homeowner now. You know, it's kind of difficult at times, you know, uh, but in some places, I know when my wife and I were up in Chicago, it was actually cheaper to be a homeowner than it was to be a renter in some cases, which is kind of interesting. So the Holy Spirit, though, you know, operates as our sort of spiritual down payment 
that allows us to enjoy a foretaste of our spiritual blessings in Christ. And so the amazing part is, is that we also don't have to worry about taxes. So God's not taxing his house. We don't have to worry about paying off a loan. And that's because God is more committed than we are, not just to securing our salvation, but to sharing our inheritance with Christ. God is so eager to share our inheritance that he wants us to experience it now, even though we haven't even made it to heaven. That's how gracious our God is. So don't live as though your blessings are all locked away in heaven and you have no access to them. That's, that's not the reality of the Christian life. Through prayer and through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, God can grant you spiritual patience in the face of any kind of frustration today. He can grant you spiritual focus in the face of any distractions today. And he can give you spiritual empathy in the face of any kind of cynicism today. You don't have to wait for those blessings because the Holy Spirit is already here. God can make us more like Jesus right now because the Spirit is in you. And we don't have to wait until we get to heaven before we can start glorifying God here on earth. Now there's one more thing the seal does according to verse 14. It says, you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, until we acquire possession of it. If you remember last week, I said Paul likes to use terms with dual meanings, where both meanings are usually theologically true. Well, there's another dual meaning going on here that both Pastor Mike Bickley and I talked about, and we think the second meaning is stronger. If you actually have an ESV Bible or a study Bible, you might see a footnote in your Bible that suggests an alternative translation here. That alternative translation is literally for the redemption of the possession. You know, that, that doesn't sound so great in the English, but that's kind of what it's saying. Uh, but what it means here in verse 14 is the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of his possession. Until the redemption of his possession. So what does this mean? Well, the Holy Spirit isn't just the down payment for our final inheritance in Christ. The Holy Spirit has also been sent to protect us as God's redeemed possession and treasure. The emphasis in verse 14, listen carefully, the emphasis is not that the Holy Spirit is protecting us until we get our inheritance from Christ. That is theologically true, but that's not the emphasis here. The emphasis in verse 14 is that the Holy Spirit is securing every single soul that Jesus has redeemed until God can take full possession of every saint he has adopted and predestined for heaven. And that's pretty cool. That means you are eternally secured by the Holy Spirit. And what could protect your soul or your home better than Flex Seal? You know, I love Phil Swift commercials because of how much passion Phil has for his Flex line of products. It's rubber in a can. It even works underwater. I sawed this boat in half and now it works just fine. If you've ever seen a Phil Swift commercial, like, you know how great they are. And if you haven't, you need to get out more. Like, like they play these things everywhere. 
I couldn't resist the play on words with flex seal. So it's like, yeah, it's just there. Because, you know, in his flex seal commercial, I watched it on YouTube. He, of course, tears this big gaping hole in a boat and then fixes it with what I assume has to be several thousand dollars worth of flex seal. I mean, it's probably more than the boat is what they're spending to fill in this hole. And then he rides the boat on the water as though, like, nothing's happened. It's like the greatest thing in the world. So, thankfully, our salvation is not secured. It's not sealed with flex seal. Uh, Rather, we've been eternally sealed in the power of the Holy Spirit. We are under God's spiritual protection. Now, over the years, a lot of people have asked me, you know, hey, can you lose your salvation? And I've never really liked that question, although I do get where it's coming from. I think a better way to ask that question or a more helpful way is, does God ever fail to save anyone? Does God ever fail to save someone? Now, you may have a different biblical line of thinking than me, and as long as you're thinking biblically, praise God. But when we come to a text like Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, it's hard for me to believe God can fail to save anyone he's chosen to save. In this first section here in chapter 1, we've learned God the Father predestines those he has chosen for adoption before the foundation of the earth. God the Son has paid the full redemption price for those the Father has chosen to save. And God the Spirit is sent as the seal, not just to protect us for our future inheritance, but to protect us as God's own treasured possession. If you're truly sealed with the Holy Spirit, then you are under God's protection. And if you're under God's protection and you are a true adopted member of God's house, then I just find it hard to believe God is going to let his treasured possession return back to the dragon's hoard that Christ has gone great lengths to redeem us from. So all in all, what does the seal do? What does the Holy Spirit do for all those who have been sealed with him in Christ? Well, first, being sealed with the Holy Spirit means we have a new name and a new responsibility. Those who have been redeemed by Christ have also been sealed with the Holy Spirit. And this means they belong to house Christ now. They belong to the church. And they have been given the responsibility to honor house Christ. Secondly, being sealed with the Holy Spirit means we don't have to wait to enjoy the blessings of heaven. One day we will get to experience the fullness of those blessings, but we don't really have to wait. We can one day get to experience what it's like to actually be in the Lord's house. But God has sealed us now with the Holy Spirit so we can experience things like the blessed power of prayer, illumination, and guidance in our lives right now for the present so we don't have to wait. And thirdly, being sealed with the Holy Spirit means we're under God's spiritual protection. We don't ever have to doubt God's ability to save us. That's what Satan wants. God values us and loves us more than we can ever know, as we're going to see later in Ephesians. So we can trust God to completely and to always finish the good work that he started within us, all for the praise of his glory. With that, let's pray. Father God, we cannot express in words how grateful we are that you chose to seal us with the Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world. Father God, thank you for sending your son Jesus 
to do the redeeming work that none of us could do and to pay the ransom for our sins that none of us could afford. God, by your Holy Spirit, help us to live lives to the praise of your glory now and forevermore. In the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus, all God's people said, Amen. This podcast was produced by Journey Bible Church in Olathe, Kansas. If you're interested in learning more about our church, visit journeybible.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We'd appreciate a positive rating and would encourage you to share this program with a friend. Thank you for listening.